You are listening to the DIY Recording Guys podcast, your one-stop information source for DIY music production, with your hosts, Fadim Karaz and Benjamin Hall. Hey, welcome to another episode of the DIY Recording Guys podcast. I'm Vadim from Comfrog Recording, and there's no one here with me today doing a solo episode all about plugins. Ben and I already recorded this episode once, but it's the episode we ended up having to scrap two weeks ago because of massive technical difficulties. So I'm going to give it a go again by myself. But first, I want to muse a little bit about what I've been going through with my mixing process. I've generally been happy with the way my mixes have been coming out over the past six to 12 months, but my process has been all over the place. I had a really well-developed process. You know, step one, I would do this. Step two, I would do this, edit, set up my tracks, get my balances, whatever. I had all of these rules that I wouldn't really break. I would spend some amount of time mixing on my monitors and some amount of time mixing on my headphones. All these little things that I did that I came up with over the years. And I've noticed that over the past couple of months, I've really strayed away from that. I've strayed away from all my best practices. And I'm kind of floundering. Like I I work on mixes and I jump around from one thing to another thing. I'll hear something over here and I'll jump to that. I've been really kind of mad at myself about this. I've been beating myself up for not being more disciplined and not sticking to my process. But I was talking to a couple of friends of mine who also produce music and they had a really interesting take on it that I wanted to share with you because I'm sure this is something you've gone through as well when you're, you feel lost, you feel like a rudderless ship. What they told me was that maybe instead of thinking that I've abandoned my processes, that I'm just in the process of developing new and better processes. So I'm in the experimentation stage of coming up with a new and improved workflow that works for me now and where I'm going with my mixing rather than where I've been and the mixes I was doing five, six, seven years ago. And I thought about it and it made a lot of sense to me. That really is kind of what's happening. I'm trying new things more and more. And because I'm trying new things and I'm kind of moving away from some old tricks and some old tools to new tools, well, That means that my process has to change as well. So I've embraced this transitional period and say, I'm I'm gonna keep doing what I'm doing and then coming out of it, eventually I will want to kind of settle into more of a routine, but I'm kind of letting myself experiment a little bit and come up with something that works. So I wanted to share that with you in case you've been struggling with something similar. Today's episode is all about these sexy things we call plugins. We're going to talk about what they are, how to use them, some best practices for when to buy them, what to buy, and of course, some of our favorite tips and tricks. So to start, what is a plugin? Well, we're going to go back, back, back. If Ben was here, he would do his rewind noise to analog desks and analog mixing consoles which if you've ever seen one, it looks kind of like your mix window in your DAW. So there's, you know, faders are what we're all used to seeing. If you pull up a picture, you see all the faders. Um, But then above the faders, there's usually some knobs, right? And these can be EQ knobs or saturation knobs or whatever. So on these old desks, a vertical 
line. So a vertical strip that includes the fader and, you know, the mute and solo button, some of these knobs that we're talking about, these processing knobs and um, whatever else that's called the channel strip, right? And you kind of, there's a, there's a plugin type called channel strip as well. So these channel strips would occasionally break or components on them would break. And so you'd have to loosen the screws and pull out pieces and then fix them and put them back in. And of course, what ended up happening was the desks would break or somebody would really like a particular EQ section of a particular desk and they would mix and match. They would maybe steal um, a uh, steal an EQ from one mixing board, put it into another mixing board. And that is actually where the term plug-in comes from. It's actually its origins are in the hardware analog realm because you could you picture these modules, you could plug them in to a different desk. So that's where the term plugin originally comes from. When audio went digital, as an all gone digital, but when people started working digitally, now we're not talking about a changing voltage signal, right? As we know, we're talking now about ones and zeros. So we have a representation of audio of the waveform that is encoded as ones and zeros and those are called bits and so people started writing code that would allow you to process digital audio similarly to the way we processed analog audio and these little bits of code are what we call plugins so a plugin is basically just a an algorithm a series of formulas that we can run our digital audio through to get some other result. So for example, we could have a digital compressor, which analyzes the ones and zeros and just uses math, cold, hard, brutal math, which is the same every time. And it runs the ones and zeros through it. And it says, okay, these bits need to be changed in such a way as to get an output that now is compressed. So that's one thing that a plugin has. A plugin has this backend algorithm that we don't see, but this is what the plugin is doing. This is what makes it work. It takes audio or digital audio as an input, does some processing, some number crunching, and it spits out an output. Another important part of plugins is the graphical user interface or the GUI you'll hear it sometimes called. And that is just the faceplate of the plugin that we can interact with on our computer. So this is, you know, a compressor faceplate. It has adjustable knobs and settings on it, we can use that interface to interface with the plugins and affect how it's working. These bits of code, these plugins are modular, so we can put them one after the other. And our processor will kind of run these little algorithms in the order which we place them. So if we have a track of audio, we put in one plugin, another plugin after it, well, the processor, our, our processor will, uh, run those algorithms in the order that they're placed on our track. And just like with analog desks, we have different companies that make different plugins. Now they're called plugins because we're plugging them into our DAW. So I can have uh, multiple plugins from multiple different companies. These companies are all coding their own plugins. I can buy them and then I can mix and match them and put them into my DAW. So it's a really kind of convenient way to work digitally. Now, one thing to note is that analog gear works essentially at the speed of light. So if you're not sure about what the speed of light is, I want you to go into a dark room with a stopwatch. I want you to turn on the light switch, start the stopwatch as soon as you turn on the light switch, and then stop the stopwatch as soon as the light reaches the ground, right? It might take you a couple times to get it, but no, I'm just kidding. 
don't do that. The speed of light is very, 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 very fast. And so when we run audio, which is just, again, an electrical signal through analog gear, it's, a, it's essentially traveling at the speed of light through the components, through those circuit components. So it works very, very fast. In the digital world, we need to do math. Our processor needs to do math. It needs to take the numbers and crunch them. So digital processing takes time. It chews up our RAM and our CPU. And so we can reach some limitations that we wouldn't have reached with, uh, with analog gear. In addition, in the early days of digital audio, plugins just sounded bad. Okay, so analog gear has all this unique behavior where people designed a compressor we talked about compressors on a recent episode where a compressor is basically at its core it was designed to be like an automated fader so it was a way to level audio and compress the peaks down a little bit smaller uh, so to get a more level signal but because of the circuitry design so they had to put these various components um like transistors discrete op amps, transformers, they had to put all of these electrical components into these compressors. And those components had some uh, unexpected benefits where they would color the audio or change the audio in a way. And this one way to describe this is the non-linearities. So in other words, the signal you put into a compressor, even if that compressor is not working, an analog compressor that is, is going to get changed a little bit. There's going to be harmonic content that's created. There's going to be some small phasing things with through transformers and uh, little saturation effects, different circuits had different characters, but these things ended up being pleasing. We didn't, I think maybe we didn't even really realize this. We, we knew that different compressors, different gears sounded differently, but until we started trying to replicate this digitally, it may not have been obvious how much benefit these recordings were getting uh, from this analog gear. So if you picture like in the days of analog, you recorded a sound, it went through an amp, a microphone. It went through a, a preamp that what maybe had some tubes in it or transistors or whatever. Then it went through your analog mixing desk. It got uh, went through a compressor. It was recorded to tape. Then it went back into the desk. There's an output transformer. Anyway, it went through all these different analog stages, which all kind of colored and, and, and helped add some glue to the sound. So in the early days of digital, people were like, we're going to make compressors. They sounded bad. And a lot of times you still hear this kind of trope online about digital compressor sounding cold or digital audio sounding cold or harsh or brittle, right? These are kind of the terms you hear. And a lot of this is because, again, those those digital processors are math equations. You put in a bunch of ones and zeros, they process them very predictably, very transparently, and too much transparency can be a bad thing. So eventually, digital audio started to evolve, and companies started saying, what is it about analog gear that sounds better than these plugins we're making? And they started trying to emulate these classic bits of gear. So you picture you take an analog compressor, you measure what's going into it, and then you measure what's going out to it, and then you vary the input signal, and you kind of track the output, and then you try to create a mathematical correlation between the input and the output. So now, maybe you can start to get a pattern of these nonlinearities. So at lower levels, it does this. At higher levels, it behaves like this. And you can start developing more complex algorithms, which kind of emulate analog gear. And this has gotten amazingly good over the past couple of years. 
um, to where now, you know, there's a lot of plugins that emulate analog gear that sound 99% of the way there. You can barely tell a difference. So it, they've really, really come a long way at modeling gear. And of course, there's a lot, a ton of advantages to working with plugins. You can save presets. You can buy one plugin and put 25 instances of it in your session, right? If you bought an analog compressor, you have one analog compressor. You can only run one signal through it at a time. You can recall old sessions. So I could pull up an old session. All the settings are already there. I don't have to look up uh, what I had my knobs set to. So there's a lot of advantages to working with these digital plugins. So problem number one was they didn't sound that great. It's kind of been solved. Another problem was that, again, this digital processing takes time. It takes our processor time to crunch these numbers. So if I have one track with only one plugin on it and I have another track with 10 plugins on it, well, the, plug, uh, the track with 10 plugins on it might take my processor longer to process. But DAWs, digital audio workstations, are smart and they have a feature called delay compensation, which in Pro Tools you can actually turn on and off. But what that does is it kind of looks ahead and says, mm, okay, this track with 10 plugins on it, it's going to take me uh, two milliseconds to process that. Uh, this other one is only going to take me one millisecond to process. Therefore, I'm going to delay the, the track that takes one millisecond by one millisecond so that all the tracks have a two millisecond delay and everything is nice and smooth. Obviously numbers are just made up, but this delay compensation feature allows us to do different amounts of processing on different tracks. And still when we hit play, all of our tracks play together the way we expected. So that's a nice feature. If you're having issues with uh, like latency or track tracks being delayed, see if that's a, to uh, a feature that can be toggled on or off and make sure it's on. So the types of plugins we have in a lot of ways match the types of analog processors we have. We have things like channel strips, which gives us basically a signal chain that we would want for uh, like a microphone we recorded. So it might have an EQ, might have compression, it might have a de-esser, it might have a saturation stage, expand or whatever. A common channel strip is uh, basically a bunch of processors uh, chained together that we would normally want or we may want to process a track with. We can have obviously equalization, compressors, limiters, these are all of our dynamics processors. Um, we can also have effects, right? Like basically like think about your guitar pedals, right? We could have delays, reverbs, um, distortions, any types of things like that. We can also have amp simulators, right? Which are kind of similar to what we were talked about where we take an amp and that's analog amp and we model it digitally so that we can get that same similar type of sound from a plugin. So because these plugins are bits of code, we usually need to install them after we buy them. And there's different types of formats. So these are some of the ones, if you ever hit install on a plugin, it usually brings up a window and says, hey, which format, at least on PC, this is how it works. It says, which formats do you want to install? So there's VSTs, which are virtual studio technology. And I think now there's VST2, which I think pretty much everything is VST2 now. That was invented by a company called Steinberg. There's AAX, which is Avid specific. So for Pro Tools users, AAX is the plugin you want. There's AU on Max. There's RTAS, which is an older version. And there's standalone versions of these plugins. 
So I remember when I first started buying plugins, I, you know, I was like, install everything. Give me every version. Give me all the presets. Give me every manual. You don't actually need to do that. They don't take up a ton of space, so it's not super important. But understand which format your DAW uses and then install those formats. Uh, also, you sometimes will have options between 32-bit and 64-bit. So if you're on a 64-bit system like Windows 10, um, you want to install the 64-bit versions. The standalone version is what it sounds like. It's basically you able to run that plugin by itself outside of the DAW. So you can may maybe like um, a virtual instrument. You may be able to run it without running your DAW, and then you could play that virtual instrument kind of standalone, right, without the DAW. So you may want that. You may not want that depending on what your use case is. Very important thing is that all DAWs come with stock plugins. A stock plugin is just that it's a plugin that comes with your DAW. Like if you bought a mixing desk and it came with an EQ and a fader, those are the stock EQ and fader. So DAWs come with stock plugins and don't assume that they don't sound great. It's very common that these, these DAWs have fantastic sounding stock plugins they're usually more on the transparent side but not always they have started adding some interesting uh, saturation tools and effects that can sound really good so don't discount those uh, i use stock plugins on every single mix i do there's some stock plugins with pro tools that i think just sound great uh, there's one awesome one that is called FilterGate, which does these cool stutter effects that you may think you need like a hundred dollar plugin for and you don't it just came stock with it i didn't even know it existed for years but clicking around one day i found it played around with it awesome plugin use it all the time very commonly the eqs the parametric equalizers that come with your daw are excellent they're usually like i said on the transparent side which is good that means you can correct problems with recorded audio in a transparent way without changing it in a way that may, may be unexpected. So very commonly, you'll see people using stock EQs for transparent EQ functions. When you get into buying plugins, one thing you will run into is license management. So these companies were dealing with bits of code and, and often not huge bits of code. So what's stopping me from just going on the internet and downloading some of this code? Well, these companies spend a lot of time and resources developing these tools. They have engineers working for them and testers and salespeople and marketing people. They need to protect their investments and they need to prevent piracy. So very commonly, you will have different license managing systems. One common one is called iLock. Uh, what an iLock is, is it looks like a USB key. It's a physical piece of hardware. You plug it into your computer and on that iLock, you can store all of your licenses. So when I buy a plugin, I get access somehow, different companies have different ways of doing it, but I get access to a license. Maybe I get an activation code. I can use that activation code to load the license onto my iLock and then it lives there. And now when I plug that iLock into a computer, I have access to all of my plugins that have licenses on that iLock. If I have a second computer, easy. I take the iLock and plug it into the second computer and I can run those plugins there. You still need to install the plugins, but they won't run, or at least the full versions won't run without that iLock. Some companies just use serial numbers. You put in a serial number and you activate it and it lives on your computer and that's it. Some companies use more proprietary tools like Waves has a proprietary system that is similar to an iLock, but you don't need the physical 
iLock device, you can use any USB key and keep your licenses on that USB key. Uh, you access them through Wave Central, which is actually super annoying, even though Waves makes great plugins. Um, kind of a pain to work with, but once you get it set up, you can uh, you can muddle through. Most plugins also come with presets. So a preset is just default settings that do different things. So for something like a compressor plugin, you might get a preset that's like smashed drums or whatever. These presets can be helpful as learning tools. So uh, you pull them up and see what they do, and then you can tweak them and you can save your own presets. Maybe there's some compressor settings you love on a vocal chain. Great. Set that as a preset. You can save it. That's the other cool thing about working with digital plugins. Other plugins like EQs, I'm very skeptical when EQs have presets because EQ is a corrective tool. It can also be an enhancement tool, but it's very, very, very dependent, completely dependent on what the source audio sounds like. Why would I want to always brighten a vocal? It doesn't make sense. So when you see something like shimmery vocal, be careful because maybe your vocal doesn't need more shimmer. It's usually going to be like a high shelf that's pushed way up and that may not sound great on your audio. So still a Maybe a good thing to check out say, oh, okay, so shimmery is this type of shelf, but you really have to be careful with EQ presets. I personally don't really think EQ presets make a ton of sense. I certainly have never saved my own EQ presets unless it's for like an effect, like maybe like a telephone effect or something like that. So some things to consider when you're buying plugins. I had this one crazy story where I couldn't get these plugins I was buying to work and I got really animated with the customer support person. Um, couldn't understand what was going on and basically was like asking for my money back. It turned out that my Windows 8.1 system had a bunch of updates that I hadn't done. And once I did those updates, my plugins worked. So I owed that person an apology, which I gave to them. So stand up guy right here. Another thing you have to be cautious of is how much uh, processor real estate these plugins take up i have a few plugins that i bought that i don't use because they're so processor heavy that i just can't really run them in busy sessions and even though i like the plugins i, I end up never using them uh, so you need to be a little bit careful a great thing to do is download the trials a lot of plugin companies ha uh, have trials you can download it for like you know use it for 10 days two weeks whatever it is that's great. You know, you imagine if you were going to buy a guitar and you could just take it home for two weeks and play it first and see if you liked it. Um, it's a great feature. So I highly recommend that before you buy a plugin, get the trial, run it, see if you like it, see if the user interface makes sense to you and if it's easy to use. If it's not easy to use, you're probably not going to use it. There's some cool plugins I have that are just hard to use and I don't use them. I think to myself when I'm buying them, like, I'll use that. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter that the interface is clunky. I'll use it. But I don't because in the in the scheme of things, you just want to move quickly, right? You want to reach for tools that you're comfortable using. Some other things to consider when you're buying plugins are should you be buying this plugin? It sounds simple, but do you already own a plugin that does what this plugin is doing? Probably, right? How many compressor plugins do you need? I'm talking to myself a little bit here too because I have way too many. So what does this tool do? 
And do you need it? Do you already own something that does this? If so, that's okay. How is this different? What is this going to give you that you don't currently have? And a couple of things that I think about are, one, is it going to make my workflow faster? I found some plugins that do things that I would want to do anyway in a much simpler way. So for example, uh, Boss Digital Labs has this great plugin called Mongoose. And what it does is it allows you to, you put it on a stereo track and it allows you to set a frequency below which it collapses that stereo track to mono. So it allows you to kind of tighten up the bass in a track. And that's cool. There's a way to do that without a plugin. You can just have sends and EQs and then returns. You can definitely set that up, but this plugin makes it simpler. So that for me was like, okay, this isn't going to necessarily give me a better sound, but it's a workflow improvement and therefore I can justify buying it. So that's one thing. Is it going to make your workflow faster? Two is, is it going to give you a better sound, right? So some plugins just sound fantastic and you have to have them and they do something very unique. Cool. That's a good reason to buy a plugin. Another reason might be if it's on sale, if it's something you just want, you know, oh my God, I just want this plugin. I just really need it. And that's okay. You know, we're, we love working on audio. Some of the stuff is toys. None of it is going to change your life. If you really want it and it's on sale, it could be a good reason to get it. And I will tell you, all of these plugins go on sale regularly. So if there's something you're eyeing up and it's not on sale now and you don't really need it right now, sign up for, the, for like an email list or whatever it is. Be notified about sales. Companies very often do crazy sales on plugins, 50%, 60% off. Uh, so you can, a couple times a year this happens. So if you don't need it right now, wait, chances are it's going to go on sale. There's a lot of times I don't buy plugins. There's a lot of reasons not to buy plugins. One reason is another emulation of a classic piece of gear. There's a couple of these classic beloved pieces of gear, like the 1176 compressor, which if you've ever searched for mixing vocals or drums, that's one of the main compressors that comes up. It's been emulated to death. They're, every company has an 1176 emulation. They all sound great. I don't need another one. And frankly, I see emulations of analog gear at this point. I, I look the other way. It's cool to have a couple. If you don't have any, it might be cool to have a couple. But I don't think we need to model that particular compressor anymore. Just my opinion. There's other plugins. Like I mentioned, the, uh, the Mongoose plugin from Boz Digital Labs. That's a cool one. There's other similar plugins that do something that's so silly that you don't need to pay for it. I'll give you another story also about Boz Digital Labs. There is a famous plugin company, Universal Audio, like the most famous one. And they make great plugins, by the way, fantastic sounding plugins. But they have this one plugin called Voice of God, which famously, it's like a $130 plugin. Famously, it's basically a... Um, a high pass filter with a resonant peak. So what that means is you can you can shave off some low frequencies, but then where you kind of shave them off, there's a little resonant bump. And so it's it's a, it's a cool effect. The thing is most parametric EQs have this feature built in. So Boz 
uh, from Boz Digital Labs made a free plugin called Bark of Dog, which does the same exact thing as Voice of God. You can get it for free. It's a cool plugin. Uh, but again, you don't need that because if you know what it does, it's doing something that most parametric EQs do. And this is common. Like a lot of the stuff is marketed really well. You know, you watch the YouTube video. I get suckered into this all the time. I watch the YouTube video. I'm like, this sounds awesome. I need this. But you take a step back and ask yourself, what is this really doing? Can I already do this some other way in my workflow? And if you can, why do you need it? Another cool thing to do with all your plugins is turn all the knobs. I actually learned this from watching CLA Mix. Chris Lord Algae is like one of the most famous mix engineers. He's done Green Day and Muse and a lot of records you've heard of. And he mixes on analog gear predominantly. But one thing you'll see him do is when he pulls up a uh, track and he's got his EQ, he'll take that EQ and he'll turn it all the way up and then back down, right? And he's and what he's doing is he's seeing what that band does or what that knob is going to do to the sound. Not necessarily because that's the move he's going to make, although it might be, but he just wants to see what is that shelf boost going to do or whatever the what's that frequency boost going to give me in this particular sound. And I highly, highly, highly encourage you to do the same thing with plugins. When you pull up a plugin, I used to be very kind of judicious, a little bit here, a little bit there, but it's actually much cooler to push it, push the knobs hard, because first of all, it's going to quickly tune your ear into what you're listening for. So you're lowering the threshold on a compressor. What does it sound like when you lower it a lot? Because if you can hear what it sounds like when you lower it a lot, then you'll you'll be able to tune into that even with subtle changes. So it's a way to tune your ear. But also, a lot of these plugins, because the algorithms are getting so complex, you will find little Easter egg things. You will find little knobs on plugins that do cool things. And then those become your mix tricks, right? That becomes your unique sound. When you have this weird plugin that maybe only a handful of people have, but you found this one knob does this crazy thing on bass guitar, that's your mix trick. And that can become a part of your sound. Those things are so exciting to find. Uh, so I encourage you to do that, to push plugins hard. A lot of times when you push plugins hard, they'll sound terrible. But every now and then you'll find a little Easter egg um, thing that'll become like a pet mix trick of yours, which is very, very cool. Um, there is, a, it, it is annoying if you have to switch computers to reinstall all of your plugins. One thing is like, what plugins do you have? It's amazing. Like if I had to do this from scratch right now, I'd probably struggle. I'd probably uh, get 80% of the plugins I use, but then the first mix I did, I'd probably be like, oh yeah, this one, I forgot. I have to download it. So uh, one way to get around that is um, to make something called a system image of your computer. So we talk about file backups a lot, right? You can have a cloud backup system that you're just saving your files to, and that's great. You should definitely do that or save them on an external hard drive or both, which is what I do. I have an external hard drive and a cloud backup system. But that just allows you to recover your files, it does not recover your installed applications, including your plugins. If you create a system image, that is literally a mirror of what your computer is now. So it will reinstall your, your plugins, your presets, your DAW, your everything, including your files, you know, your samples and so on. So 
I encourage you to do that. You don't need to make a, a system image as often as you should do uh, backups, which is pretty often. I, my, I do mine pretty much daily for just file backups. Uh, system image, I'm overdue myself, but it's a good thing to have. Uh, it's a good thing to do periodically. So some plugin companies that you probably have heard of. Waves is a big one. They have one of the I think they were one of the first ones that were making plugins that sounded good. In fact, the uh, the Renaissance Compressor, they had a whole suite of plugins. They still have it uh, called Renaissance Suite. The Renaissance Compressor is like widely considered to be one of the first digital compressors that uh, sounded good. And I still use that compressor. It's a very transparent compressor. Uh, but it's uh, it's a great it's a great tool and those plugins I think the the Renaissance package has just been updated as well uh, so it's a little bit I think mostly like the um, the user interfaces have gotten a facelift so they look a little bit nicer a little bit more modern those are very cool plugins uh, obviously Universal Audio is another big one they tend to be very very pricey Universal Audio pays I think they pay for some of the uh, naming rights so like when they model uh, a piece of classic gear when they create an emulation they actually uh, use the name of that piece of gear so for example they make um, like the um, distressor is a famous compressor their plugin is actually called distressor it looks exactly like the distressor so they pay to do that and they <laughs> they pass those payings on to you the customer so they're very expensive good sounding plugins um, but there's a lot of small companies out there like Boz that are making really cool stuff that are worth checking out. Uh, Plugin Boutique is another great um, website where you can you can have really amazing deals and you can get uh, cool plugins there. Also, keep your eyes open for free plugins. There's a lot of cool free plugins out there. Uh, some companies give them away kind of as you know lead magnets to get you on their email list or whatever. Uh, but one really cool one that I use is um, so I use a plugin called Frequency Analyst or Freak Analyst from uh, Blue Cat Audio. Free plugin. It's just a spectrum analyzer, but it's great. You need a spectrum analyzer, <laughs> so why not have a free one? I'm not sure if this plugin is still free, but it was free a couple of months ago. It's called oh, I can't remember what it's called. <clears throat> I think it's called the Coral Baxter. The Coral Backs. I have to look it up. It's uh, an emulation of actually this uh, dangerous, this dangerous music backs EQ, and it's a great sounding plugin for uh, shelving EQs, which is a great way to uh, basically gives you two really wide. They're called backs in all shelves. You can make a track brighter or darker, and uh, it's a great plugin. Um, so check that one out. Another cool one I've been using a lot from Boz Digital Labs, which I keep mentioning a lot. That's that's by accident, but uh, I do like Boz um, plugins. There's some really cool tools. It sounds stupidly simple. It's called the Width Knob. And when I first read about it, it was one of those plugins that I said, I don't need this. I already <laughs> I can do this with panning. But it's a free plugin. What it does is you put it on a stereo track. And so... Picture your stereo track or a bus where everything on the bus coming into the bus is panned hard left and hard right. But the width knob <clears throat> lets you adjust the width with a single knob. That's all it has is a single knob. 
So basically by moving the knob, you can move your stereo field in or out, which again, sounds stupid, but it's very useful in a mix because if you have a busy mix and you're trying to find a place in the stereo field for something, you can just pan it hard left, hard right, pull up this width knob and you can actually, you know, kind of tune it uh, till you get it to where you want it. And you can actually even tune it negative and like make the left and right channels cross. So just another cool free plugin to check out. That's pretty much it. I do want to give you a final word of caution. You can lose your shirt buying plugins. They don't seem that expensive, but it really adds up. And I think most people are in the boat where they have more plugins than they use. So be careful, be careful, be careful. Use the trials and really ask yourself if this is something you need because there is this kind of endorphin release when you buy a plugin. I think it feels good and like you watch the marketing material, it always sounds great. Think twice because you will spend more money than you need to spend. In fact, it's a good idea. Every now and then I still do this. It's a good idea to try and do a mix using only your stock plugins. Whatever DAW you're using, there are enough stock plugins there to get you a good mix. And if you can't get a good mix with stock plugins, then none of these other tools are going to help you. So challenge yourself. Get a good mix with the tools you already have. And we talk about this all the time. By pushing yourself with that fixed set of tools, you will reach the limits. You will get better and you will reach the limits of those tools. And it is only when you reach the limits of your existing tools that you can really understand where you need to go next from a purchase standpoint to take your skills to the next level. That's it for this episode of the DIY Recording Eyes podcast. If you haven't yet, check out our DIY recording ebook at howtorecordyourband.com. That will also put you on our email list, which means if you ever miss an episode and we give away a free cheat sheet or something like that, uh, we usually will send that out to our email list as well. So this makes sure you don't miss any of our resources. And plus, it means I can send you a note every now and then and you can reply to it and we can have a little conversation like humans do. Not on Instagram, not on the internet, not these cheap little interactions where we just like each other's things, but not really. We can actually talk. Wouldn't that be cool? Check that out. And also, if you want to initiate that conversation, just email me. You can email me at vadim at DIYrecordingeyes.com. I read every single email I get. That's a promise. Until next time, this is Vadim reminding you to check yourself before you wreck yourself. If you're enjoying the podcast, take a minute to leave a rating wherever you like to listen to it or share it with your friends on social media. Also, Benjamin and I are working engineers and we love helping people turn ideas into finished productions. So if you're interested in working with one of us or just want to discuss a project you're working on, reach out. You can find my work at calmfrogrecording.com. Get me on Instagram at calmfrogrecording or shoot me an email vk at calmfrogrecording.com and you can check Benjamin's workout at dreamloudstudio.com hit him up on Instagram at dreamloudstudio or by email ben at dreamloudstudio.com and finally join our Facebook group to engage with a whole group of friendly like-minded people who are interested in DIY recording just search for DIY recording guys on Facebook 
Thank you so much for listening and for your continued support. We'll see you next week.